The last time I remember talking to you was I was in a hotel room in March. It was like March 10th uh, or 11th. And I went to a hotel room to like get some writing done. And it was just on the cusp of like when it was maybe not okay to do that. Yeah, and then I don't think, have I talked to you since then? I don't think I have, like throughout all this. I think it's been a while. I, I've imagined your voice in my head several times as I've given sermons over the last <laughs> But I don't know if we've actually talked directly. <laughs> no, I don't think we have. So yeah, I'm, I'm just curious to hear about the whole thing. Um, and, you know, and some of which might have no place in the podcast, but we can figure that out. From Reboot, this is In Quarantine. I'm Steve Bodo here talking life during Corona. It's August and we keep going. And as we get to the fall, uh, those of us with kids, the big question is school. Will it open? When will it open? How often will it open? Will it be safe? What about lunch period? So we got word a few days ago, there's school, my kid's school. It it is going to have in-person classes at least to start the year, one optional day a week. They'll be at home four days and we can choose to send them one day a week. The rest will be remote. Um, and it seems like a pretty good plan. And we think we're going to send them. Um, it's not without risk. Uh, we're not without anxiety about it. But it, it seems that there's so much benefit for them emotionally uh, that we're going we're gonna to try it. Um, and also, this whole thing is supposed to be about health. And they've made it clear that if we don't let them go to school, they'd probably kill us. So, you know, self-defeating. Anyway, my guest today uh, makes me say things I never thought I would say. For instance, my guest today is one of the great (laughs) rabbis of our time. I say that with confidence, even though I don't know hardly any other rabbis of our time. I don't know, but I'm sure that Sharon Brass is that good. (laughs) She's that good. Uh, She leads a great service. Her sermons rock the house. Um, She is the founding and senior rabbi of ICAR, the Los Angeles Congregation, that has become, as they say on the website, a model for Jewish revitalization in the U.S. and beyond. Um, I'm proud to call her a friend. And though I don't even really know what I mean by this, uh, I would also call her a role model. Maybe we'll talk about that. I don't know. Sharon, well, welcome. <laughs> welcome to In Quarantine. Thank you, Steve. I'm so glad to be with you. I am glad you're here. Um, you've been, uh, and this is not a criticism, it's just a fact, like, it's been hard to get time with you. What is keeping a rabbi uh, especially busy during a pandemic? Like, what is the job compared to what it was before this craziness started? So, first of all, thank you for that beautiful intro, Steve. Um, I, I love hearing that I'm one of the best of something you don't know anyone else does. <laughs> but I'm sure it's true. It's great. <laughs> um, You know, it's interesting because when we first started talking about doing this podcast, it was before the murder of George Floyd. And I think before we before we knew about Ahmaud Arbery's murder as well. And I think that's right. Yeah. So we were going to just talk about a global health crisis and economic collapse and what that has meant um, in the world from a kind of spiritual, political, social um, standpoint. And then all of a the sudden there was this whole additional layer of upheaval in the world. I mean, in some ways, just dealing with, just dealing with the pandemic alone um, has meant trying to figure out how to 
holds a community in the midst of real crisis, um, not only the health crisis and the economic crisis, but also the spiritual and mental wellness crisis that we're in right now. Um, and then the upheaval that emerged with this movement for racial justice, the the masses of people in the street, the great moral awakening that the country's going through on top of all of that, it, it's, it, I think that the, the level of uncertainty, discontinuity, the tremors that we're all thinking, feeling and experiencing right now are so profound. And so we're kind of fired up on all fronts and we're dealing with the crisis in democracy, the ecological devastation and the crisis of, of, of climate. Um, does right, it, that which should be like the biggest thing we have to worry about is taking a back seat to several other things, which is in itself insane. Yeah, right. We just started to grasp the the urgency of that conversation, and there's that crisis, and then the crisis of of democracy, of course, which is not only everything that's happened in the course of the last three and a half years, but also what we project might likely happen in November, and watching. These, you know, these these checks and balances just just completely fizzle, and and recognizing how vulnerable we are, all are without strong democratic institutions, um, and then on top of that, the 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 health crisis. <laughs> and the crisis. On top of that, on top of that, no, I know it's true. No, and it's like, the crisis of racial justice like this, and the failures, yeah. of, you know. So no, and, and the failure of our country yeah. to contend with our with our own history and the the truths that are being laid bare in this moment. So so what I mean, what does that lead to if not a profound <laughs> spiritual crisis? And so it this feels does like answer my question. What have you been so busy with? Yeah. So I'm just I mean, telling you, I called you back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot going on. It's been pretty busy. <laughs> uh, so uh, the uh, what do you think is the um, the effect of the crises on each other, if you see what I mean, like would people have reacted to it in quite the same way? Uh, like mm -hmm. how is, is each thing priming us for the next? How is it all sort of uh, feeding off each other? Well, I think, unfortunately, George Floyd would have been murdered, pandemic or no pandemic, because that's, that's just the reality of what happens too often to Black men in America at the hands of law enforcement. And I don't think that the reaction that we've seen over the course of the past two months would have been what it was, were it not also for the crisis of this presidency, the crisis of democracy and the crisis of the pandemic, which kept us inside. There was no, there were no distractions. There was, there was no NBA in, uh, on May 25th. There was nothing else happening mm -hmm that we could focus on. And I think a couple of things happen. Number one, not having distractions because we're a society that really thrives on distracting ourselves. We, we do love them. It's yeah. important. We love that. So on one hand, there were very few distractions. On the other hand, I think that the Trump presidency has already awakened a lot of people who've been asleep for a long time to how deep and profound the, the this crisis really is. Um, and the pandemic itself, which revealed the depth of the disparity between the way that um, that that a virus, which everyone was saying does not discriminate, discriminates, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we understood within a couple weeks that the virus that the virus was disproportionately affecting black and brown Americans. Uh, it was disproportionately harming 
poor Americans. I mean, we were, so we were just right. starting yeah. or, to wake up to those realities. Yeah, it's not um, yours. It's not the virus that discriminates. It's the, it's the system the virus is operating in. Right, yeah. right. So what's become really clear is that the, on one hand, the confluence of these crises makes it almost unbearable, but it's also what's making, what's waking us up. I mean, we're, we're so raw right now. We're so raw. And I, my, my fear is that we don't stay awake for too long as Americans in particular. I mean, we live in, in this culture of distraction. There's going to be a hunger to go back to, yeah, to not awake, to not raw. Like, I've, yes, it, it's, yes. And, I, I, like, I, I feel that uh, and, you know, and fight it. And I, but there's going to be that. Uh, temptation, a lot of forces in place, I think, to to exacerbate that temptation. And people who, frankly, profit from and benefit from uh, from us being asleep, and and so it, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's going to be a there, there's a very short window here hmm. um, in, in which we have the opportunity to make real structural change. And if we don't grab that opportunity, I don't think it comes again for. A generation or two. And so with this unimaginable confluence of crises, we also have, I think, an incredible opportunity to make real structural change right. in the country. Well, let me go meta on this conversation for a second. Like, You are a rabbi, the leader of a congregation, and you talk a lot about politics and social justice and this. That was not my experience growing up, certainly with the rabbi I had. And I don't think it was the norm very much at that time. Um, and that I, I don't know why that was. I mean, the community I grew up in, it was probably 60-40 for Reagan in the in the 80s. But, you know, only 60-40 meant that you couldn't really preach one way or the other and, and not, uh, you know, not alienate a lot of the congregation. That is clearly not how you think about the gig. Uh, what's the role in your mind between being, you know, a rabbi and a leader, a spiritual leader, and uh, being as political as you often are? Well, I, I mean, first, you know that, you know, this this famous line that nobody can properly attribute that our job is to is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable, which was initially about journalism. It might have been H.L. Mencken, who I think was a terrible anti-Semite, but I'll look that up. Uh, you know what? A lot of <laughs> this is an era of awakening. And so we're finding that a lot of the good things came from people with really deeply flawed <laughs> views of the world. So, but I think that, I think that's, I, I want to just start there because the job of a rabbi, the job of a member of clergy is to, is to bring a sense of, of love and connectedness to people who feel invisible and disconnected. And so that, that, and to, to, to kind of mine our sacred inheritance of thousands of years in order to find the wisdom that can help people feel hopeful, even in times that are incredibly despairing. And so that's the first piece. And then, you know, unfortunately, I think we have this really distorted understanding of what politics is and what its role is in our lives. And the, the way that I understand politics is that it's really that that it is the, the ordering or the structuring of a society. How do you what kind of social experience do you create so that you can manifest your core your core values, your principles, and your priorities for every single human being in a social setting, in a setting that's larger than just the individual. And so how can that not be the, the, in, fall into the realm of 
um, of what a clergy member is supposed to talk about. But people so have what, found ways for, for years and for centuries. I mean, it's, I, I, on the one hand, I understand exactly what you're saying. On the other hand, like, I think it's much more the exception than the rule. I don't, I don't know if that's right, though, because I think that very often the people who claim that there's no role for, for politics in religion speak that way when, when the politics that they approve of is the dominant political force, mm. right? So then they don't want us to speak out against it in religious spaces because, frankly, they're satisfied with the status quo. Right. And so I think a lot of times when we hear people say that there's no role for politics in the pulpit or, or that, we, that clergy should, you know, as, um, as one Fox News commentator had said to LeBron, shut up and keep dribbling. Like, it's the same thing that they say to clergy members. Yeah, shut up and daven, in other words. Shut up and daven. Exactly. No, and by the way, I mean, we're explicitly told that often. Right. Just this morning, literally this morning, I was reflecting on one of the most extraordinary um, Kol Nidre sermons I've ever heard. This was a sermon called The Vocation of a Rabbi, given by a teacher of mine named Rabbi Leonard Bierman, one of the great rabbis um, of the of the 20th century. And and Bierman, I don't know if you've ever encountered him, but he he was an incredible- I don't. I mean, if I did, I'd probably put him on my list of the greats. You should, well, <laughs> yes, you, he should certainly be on your list. Um, I want to complicate your understanding of who the greats are. But. <laughs> so September 17, 1972, listen to what he says. And imagine this is a, a big, you know, fairly wealthy Los Angeles Jewish community. It's Kol Nidre. Everyone's all dressed up. They come in and this is what he says. When we try to be serious about our task, we know that what we say will not only comfort, but also disturb. I have no burning desire to disturb you, to upset you, but I'm convinced that there are enough sedatives and tranquilizers traversing the bloodstreams of the members of this congregation alone without adding to their number. There are enough clergy around to perform this role. As a model for this, one should go to the East Room of the White House on a Sunday morning, where each week two or 300 invited guests especially token priests and pastors, all of them solid, respectable, all of them giving their blessing to whatever it is that the president is doing. Wherever it appears, in the White House, in churches or synagogues, this is not authentic religion. Wherever religion does no more than sedate and tranquilize, it becomes a drug, a snare, a delusion. That's Rabbi Ehrman. Right, he's uh, an opiate. He might. He, I said. mean, he's saying like religion is not in a, in a there to way. silence the uh, masses. It is there to to remind us of what's possible in the world. To remind us that we have held for yeah. thousands of years a core fundamental dream that all human beings should live in dignity. And when you live in a society that makes a mockery of that dream, you're not doing your job if you don't fight with everything you've got, with all of your spiritual, intellectual, political, social resources to try to transform that reality. Yeah. I mean, it feels right to me. And I think that that's, I think that's some of what I've, has been uh, so appealing to me, but the times when I've uh, heard you preach or seen you in action is that, is that you're clearly putting that um, uh, into practice and it's, you know, at least coming from the the background that I did, like that was you know, it's revelatory, um, and and I hope a model for more and more people. 
it was revelatory for me too. I mean, I remember literally the first time I heard a rabbi preach about something that mattered. And <laughs> that's insane to say, but yeah. <laughs> and I remember it because I was completely shocked. I mean, I found it astonishing, but it was in the early 90s and I heard Rabbi Marshall Meyer, Epine Jeshurun, preach about HIV AIDS. And I don't know if I ever told you this. Did, 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 I don't, no, did I, I don't think you? so. He, I walked into this show and I'm on this crazy, you know, 19 year old journey to try to figure out what my Jewish inheritance means to me. A and, nice girl from the suburbs. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. But living in New York city in college. And I basically went to every single synagogue in Manhattan, trying to find a place where I could feel where I could feel something. And I walked out of every synagogue just so disappointed. It was like breaking my heart. And I'm so stubborn. So I just persisted. And I should have probably given up, you know, early on. I'm curious and, why you didn't actually. What uh, propelled I'm really you to keep stubborn. <laughs> I felt, why was it even a thing to be stubborn about? I felt for me, the journey was in many ways sparked by, by a profound embarrassment, a, like a sense of humiliation that this was mine. And I didn't even know the first thing about it, that mm. I, I, mean, I literally had a religious school education and I, I barely knew the olive bed. Like I didn't know the basics, basics. And I, I had this real, this thought, like, God, this thing lasted for thousands of years. And basically, you know, wherever Jews have lived, there's been persecution and oppression and expulsions and genocide. And still the thing exists. The Roman empire doesn't exist anymore. You know, the Byzantine Empire doesn't exist, but this thing exists and I don't know the basics of it. And, and like, I just, I'm embarrassed by that. And so I tried walking into a bunch of different Jewish environments in college early on. And every place I went, I was the person in the room who didn't know the words, who didn't know when to turn around. Why is everyone bowing? When you go as a guest to someone else's sacred spaces, you know that you don't know and you sit right. humbly and you learn. But when you go into your own sacred environments and your own sacred times and you grow up a Jew and you think you're supposed to know what that means and then you realize your own ignorance, it's embarrassing. It's mortifying. And so I really wanted to not be embarrassed anymore. I didn't want to be a religious Jew. I did not want to be a rabbi. I wanted to be a civil rights attorney. Like I, I had my whole plan, you know, hmm. I just felt propelled by this force that was challenging me to find a Jewish home and I couldn't find it anywhere. And then finally, I happened upon this place. And it was 92 or 93. And I was with David, who my husband, who came with me. I mean, I literally, he was like the good conservative Jew who was, you know, lived across the hall in the dorm room. And I'm like, you must come with me. I need help. I have no idea how to enter the Jewish space. And even though I grew up in it, right? But I realized how alien I was to it. And so David and I would go out every Friday night to these shuls and I hate it. I would cry. I literally leave crying. And then we went one were you, night. Were you dating at the time or that was, well, this dating? is like our, this is our falling in love. This is, time. this is your, this is your courtship yeah. is looking for a shul. Yeah. yeah. You can <laughs> very romantic. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, and as David says, like never has, never has being a conservative Jew been so sexy to someone before, but I'm like, wow, he knows <laughs> that he can read the Hebrew. He can. So so, and in fact, there's like a moment in our, in our romance, in, in the story of our romance, where we stayed up all night and he taught me the words to Kiddush, the long one. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, I never knew that would be valuable in the courting phase of a romance, but it was. So 
Um, but but at, at any rate, at some point, and it was literally weeks. <laughs> Drinking the wine, maybe, right? but say, no, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm like, I want to know the long version. <laughs> so, oh, baby. So we, we went, exactly. <laughs> so we went to... Um, we went to B'nai Jeshurun on the Upper West Side in the early 90s. And God, I walked in and it was like nothing I had ever experienced in my life. And I was just completely swept up in it. The rabbis were in the front of the room and they just they were just preaching about HIV AIDS. And Rabbi Marshall Meyer said, mark my words, this will be a pandemic and millions of people will die because of hatred and fear because we don't have the courage to educate ourselves and each other and to respond with love. And I, I was so stunned. I'm like, what is he doing? Why is he talking about something that actually matters? And I just could not believe it. Like religion was going to ask something of me more than just don't eat this and don't do that. And, you know, and sit through this service. I was so stunned. And then they started to sing Steve and like the whole place erupted and everyone got up out of their seats and they started dancing. And I'm like, joy, in the synagogue, like, why are you so happy? I mean, I've never <laughs> experienced these emotions of like intellectual stimulation, spiritual connectedness, real sense of community. I was so shocked. And I'm like, this is it. I need to, I, and I said to David, I, we have to go to Israel because now I have to learn enough to be this kind of Jew, to be a Jew who can understand what's going on in this room. Hmm. And that was like really the beginning of my Jewish of my Jewish journey. Wow. That was the first time I ever heard a rabbi make that kind of connection between what was going on on the street and in the world and what our religious life demanded of us. So, and now you've, you've obviously, uh, you know, founded and are running this congregation uh, on these principles. The things that you're describing are this, are the same things that your, uh, that your members are responding to. Is that, is, is that what they're at ECAR for? I think, different people come for different reasons. I mean, some people need a spiritual fuel. I mean, if we were out there, you know, ch shouting Black Lives Matter, but not inside in a community holding each other when, when we're broken, then we would not be doing our job. And I also think that the inverse is true. And that's why those two pieces of the job, the kind of priestly and the prophetic, you know, those are completely... Uh, completely woven together. Right. Um, I, so, so I've got uh, some you know, friends and acquaintances who are uh, therapists, different kinds. And I've heard a similar thing from a few of them, which is that as they've gone through the pandemic uh, with both with their, uh, with their patients and clients and just their, you know, people in their lives, that they've seen uh, sort of waves of reactions that a lot of people ha are going through the same thing at the same time. Like one told me, mm. for example, that mm -hmm. uh, there was a there was a week or two, and I forget if you said April or May, when all the single people in his practice who had been really, really good and safe, like they all decided at the same time that, like, no, I just like I got to get out there, I got to get laid. Mm. And there's like waves of these common emotions. I'm wondering if you've in, you know, in your realm and with your, uh, with your community seen uh, anything analogous to that, not sexual, that's not what I mean, but just like common phases that people are moving through. Hmm. I'll tell you what the, what, what that makes me think of. Um, so what we did in the first 
week, two weeks, um, as we, as we, as the safer at home order was passed here in, in LA and California was we, our clergy team sat together and we built lists of people in the community who were most vulnerable. We were triaging, you know, we're trying to, trying to make sure that we paid most attention to the people who we, who were in greatest danger. So that's everyone from, you know, the people who were because medical, medical it, danger, emotional danger. Yeah, uh, both. So people who either by age or because they were immune compromised or because um, they were people who we knew had struggled with um, with depression or because they were people who we knew um, were alone um, or because they had experienced trauma recently, that this would be as hard as it was for everyone, that it would be even harder for them. And one of the things that I found, um, you know, in talking to people who had suffered traumatic loss over the last few years is that um, several of them expressed, and these are primarily parents who've lost children, um, that there was this sense of um, a strange sense of comfort that everyone in the world was now approaching an awareness of the profound uncertainty of life that they themselves, that it was their, that was the deepest truth that they held. So I think when you've experienced that kind of traumatic loss and the veil is lifted and you really see, you really see how profoundly vulnerable we are and how fragile we are, you know, like we feel strangely and inappropriately safe and secure in the world. And I mean, even the neurotic Jews among us, like we feel, we still feel like we've got, you know, we, we have some kind of um, solid foundation. We enter six-year graduate programs, you know, <laughs> unless you think you're going to finish, you know, like we, you, you take out like m- many, many year, multi-year loans and mortgages. Like we, we go on these long, um, l- these l- kind of long trajectories. And for people who suffer traumatic loss, there's this recognition that everything, everything, everything you know to be true can be overturned in an instant. It's just tentative. And, yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And then what happened was in an instant, in the beginning of March in America, every single person was forced for at least a moment, but probably more like for five months or six months into that awareness. And so there was this sort of strange sense of, of comfort, like all of a sudden, the whole world is where I am for a moment. Like now the world is caught up with us. And then also this really deep sadness that even with all of this upheaval, the thing that, that most people are most afraid of is the thing that's already happened to us. Right? Right. We, we've already suffer, suffered from this, you know, the worst thing that could happen. And so I found that like that it's not exactly the way you're describing. No, I, I, I get it. I get the connection. So that's one trend that I did that I did notice um, and, and the other, the other thing, and this is just from the, you know, sort of from the sacred to the mundane is that I love me some mundane. Let's see. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I mean, just to talk about the mask and like the judgmentalism and the sort of self, right. The, the self-righteousness that we, we all like hold and also, um, hold close and hold far away. And everybody thinks that we're being safe and everyone else is doing it wrong. And so <laughs> like, and all the exceptions no, I mean, that I, you I, make I, are I know, justifiable. I, I know I'm doing it wrong. Okay. Okay. I know that for sure. And this might be a West Coast thing then, Steve. (laughs) And I just came back from, you know, from a little time in the mountains. And I would say 80% of the people that we passed on 
on our hikes and when walking down Main Street, we're not wearing masks. And, you know, and I'm just I, I, like, I feel this sense of my, like, my God, help me understand what's going through your head right now, because I want to love you. And because you're a human being created in the image of God. And yet I see that you're not respecting my life and other people's lives. Um, and and I, I'm trying to understand. I can't square it exactly. Yeah, it's very hard. I mean, it's this bizarre like, fractured cultural moment that we're going through where this, what should be a simple fact uh, instead right. is, is a referendum on like your place in society and culture. And like, it's, it's super bizarre. You know, it is, a, it's about how much of an obligation do I feel that I have toward you? And by the way, back to your question about politics, like that is a personal, like that is a spirit, that is a spiritual crisis as much as it's a political crisis and a cultural. Oh, I agree. Can, can I run this, like, a, this weird thought by you that I had? You can. That, <laughs> this, is, this is not something like, I don't really believe this, but it's a thought that I had. It's basically this, that in some way, like we earned this crisis, like, which sounds terrible to say, but like, this is like, this is the, this is our wages for, uh, not just for electing Trump as our leader, but for like for becoming a country that could elect him, and like for all the years of neglect and the greed, and like you know undercutting educational systems and, and inequality and all this. The it's a superstitious thing, and I don't really believe it, but like in, that that without this crisis, the world wouldn't have seen just how malign like force Trump and the people behind him are and like that we it's super old testament i'm like not an old testament person but like the the thought was well we kind of deserve this Mm. i it's i'm not saying it because i believe it but i'm saying it because like i'm trying to figure out well what does it mean that i even thought that for a moment yeah i've been thinking lately about the people who in 2016 were saying you know bring on the revolution like let Trump win so that people can see I can remember just that, yeah. racist, just how broken. And I thought it was such a vulgar it's, yeah. way of looking at the world, especially because the people who were saying it were wealthy white people and yes. not people who were going to be dying from these, you know, from the horrible policies and the appointment of judges and, you know, and, and the, 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 the ramifications of which we will be dealing with for many, many decades. But I was yeah. thinking, okay, so now the revolution's here. So, right? yeah. And things are happening. The state of Mississippi changed its flag. Yeah. Right? NASCAR banned the Confederate flag. And people are having conversations about 1619, which I can tell you that, you know, four years ago, I think if you asked 100 random Americans if they knew what 1619 meant, I, I mean, how many, how many white Americans would have known what that year even signified? Not and so yeah. now, like now this is part of our discourse and things are changing and statues are coming down and there's the chance for a real conversation about policing in America and law enforcement, about mass incarceration, about, I mean, about reparations, right? We're starting to actually discuss the things that we need to be desperately to be talking about as a nation. And if Trump had not been elected, I'm sure we wouldn't, we would not be where we are today. And yet, what's the price that we're paying for it? Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I feel I, I'm having the same kind of guilty thoughts that you're describing. So on one hand, you know, I'm grateful that the that, the, that the, this election led to this great moral awakening in America. 
And at the same time, we're paying the, a tremendous price for that moral awakening. And it's mostly, again, black and brown and poor people and trans people and you know who are paying that price. And so it, there, it is kind of a grotesque analysis, however you, however you look at it. Yep, yep, yep. As usual, um, putting much better something that I was just trying to struggle to, <laughs> to, to, to put together. Um, I got something I want to try with you. Just take a couple minutes as a silly, stupid thing. Um, and it's called, uh, it's called Name That Track Date. Okay. We're, gonna, we're gonna see how you do. I've got a oh, bunch no. of I've got a bunch of English translated uh, midrash uh, verses or sayings here. I just want you to tell me what tractate is that from? Oh God! Okay. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Youth is a crown of roses. Old age is a crown of thorns. No idea where that's from. Where really, that I'm just from? Try, really, I'm just trying to get you to say the names of different tractates. That's all I'm trying to do. <laughs> I don't know. Where's that from, Steve Budo? It's, 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 uh, it's attributed to Rav Dimi in Shabbat 152A. Okay. As you know. oh, I should have known. I know Shabbat 152A, but I did not recognize that quote. Okay. I, I thought that you would. That's why I, read, I never heard of it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This might be less do, fun than you do, keep like, do, going. Do not say something that should never be heard because ultimately it will be heard. Oh, I, well, I don't know where that's from, but I can tell you that's right. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, if you said it in Hebrew, I'd have a greater chance of recognizing it. <laughs> yeah, but I would have a lot uh, less chance of, of, uh, of saying it. Let's but see. you know that I, I just want to share something about that because there's this Jewish idea that Hillel the Elder is actually referencing here. It's Shmirat Alashon. It's like guarding your tongue. Be be careful of what comes out of your mouth um, because the world was created with words. We have this idea, in, in fact, there's a Jewish prayer that we say in the morning that says, that God, the blessed one spoke and the world came to be. And it's referencing in the beginning of the Torah when God says, you know, let there be light and there was light. So it's so interesting that with words, God created the world. And from that, we learn that we need to be very, very careful with the words that we use because words can create and words can destroy. And so there, so what, what Hillel is, is saying is that there, there's this sense that words have a power um, to kind of penetrate systems and bodies and can create incredible chaos and pain and, and even cause death and also can lift and, um, and heal. And so it's our obligation to take great care with what we say. Um, so I'm, I'm very, I'm very moved by that way of thinking. Uh, thank you for that. Um, one more. You're welcome. Um, a prisoner cannot free himself. Ah, oh, I love this. Yes. A prisoner, um, but hold on a second. This is like one of my favorite. You're going to uh, get it. That line is, I think, one of, comes from one of my core texts, which comes from Masache Brachot. That comes from Tracte Brachot 5b. And in the Hebrew, it says, Ein chavush matir mi beta asurim. A prisoner cannot free himself from prison. This is one of my favorite lines that actually comes from an incredible story in the Gemara, in the Talmud, 
about a rabbi named Rabbi Yochanan who experienced tremendous suffering. In fact, it says in the, in, in the story of his life that he lost 10 children. He had like a kind of suffering and loss that nobody in the world should know. And as a, re- as a result, he took on these healing powers. He became this incredible empath and he was a healer. And so what would happen is um, when one of the rabbis would get sick, they would call Rabbi Yochanan to come and sit by his side. And he would say to the, to the sick person, do you want to be sick? And the person would say, no, I don't want to be suffering anymore. And then he would reach out his hand and lift him up. And the text says he would rise. And so we don't know if it means like literally he's cured of his illness or his spirits would be, would rise because somebody was willing to come and sit with him and like his heart broke with him. And then he picks him up. And then Rabbi Yochanan himself gets sick. And when he does, another rabbi comes to his side and says to him, do you want your suffering? And he says, no, I do not. And then he lifts him up and Rabbi Yochanan is healed. And so the Gemara asks, um, so Rabbi Yochanan, though, he's a magical healer, right? Why does he need someone else to heal him? He's the one who heals everyone. And then this line comes and they say, because a prisoner cannot free himself from prison. Because even if you are the healer, even if you're the you're the the one who gives the great like the incredible support and love and makes lasagna and shows up and goes <laughs> to Shiva and like and makes the phone calls, you also need to be seen and you also need to be loved and you also need somebody to show up for you. And it's the hardest thing for the healers to be to receive the love because they're so used to giving it. And that line is, is I think one of the most beautiful and, and truest statements um, that I've, that I've learned. Let's end on that. That was quite something. Thank you. Um, Sharon, thank you so much. Uh, always great talking to you. For in quarantine, I'm Steve Bodo saying, yeah, but is it what it is? <laughs>